0: All right, y'all, so we are wrapping up our series in the book of James. Uh, if you've been rocking with us this summer, we've been going through James, and it's one of my favorite sermon series that we've done, and um, I say that every sermon series, though, so it's not, I'm not the most reliable person uh, for that. And today, we are finishing out our sermon series uh, in James, the fifth chapter, I want to read verses 13 through 18. Here's what James says. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being, as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, the Bible was not meant to be read in small chunks. A lot of times, for me personally, a lot of times I'll take one, one scripture and meditate over it, and I think all Bible reading is good Bible reading, but I think when the authors put pen to paper or whatever they were using, whatever twill they were using to write back in the day, they intended for that book to be read really in its entirety. Not so you could memorize different things and tweet, tweet out different verses, but so that you would get lost in the sweep of scripture and that you notice things when you give yourself to something for an extended period of time that you'll miss out on if you read something in snippets. One thing you'll notice if you read through a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is how much Jesus prayed. There's some times in the life of Jesus where really nothing was going on. And scripture says that Jesus would get up and he would go out and he would pray. There's other times where there's so much excitement, so much buzz about everything that's happening. Jesus had just healed someone and after everybody is celebrating and rejoicing, Scripture says Jesus went away to a quiet place to pray. Other times, when Jesus was going through his worst moments on this planet, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Scripture says that Jesus went and he prayed. Not only just praying himself, he asked his community, the apostles, to also pray with him. What will you get if you were just to read through a gospel? You will see that in mundane moments when nothing was going on, Jesus prayed. In exciting moments... Jesus prayed. And in agonizing moments, Jesus prayed. There's something about prayer that seemed to guide, sustain, nurture, connect God the Son with God the Father. And in every single moment in his life on earth, Jesus was, was praying. So y'all know where I'm going with this. If, if it was necessary and vital and helpful for and appropriate for God the Son to pray, how much more do you and I need prayer to guide us? to sustain us, to direct us, to correct us. So it's appropriate that James, as he ends his, right, uh, his letter to this church, that he concludes with a call for people to pray. And in verse 13, James basically says it like this, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. So what James does in verse 13 is he takes the two extremes of life suffering and cheer, and he uses them as anchors, as poles, and says that in the worst of times and in the best of times and everything in between, you should be praying. But the reality is most of us in this room don't have the prayer life that we would want. Certainly I know I don't. Uh, One of the things that I usually feel uh, inside of my, you know, deep in my soul whenever we have conversations on prayer is the first thing I think about is the disappointment with my own prayer life. I think about that I should be praying more, and I should be praying more passionately. And I think if you feel that way as well, trust me, you are not alone. Uh, There's very few people I've met in the past two decades that feel like their prayer life could not be improved. But I do think there's a number of reasons that we don't pray, or don't pray the way that we should, or as powerfully and as passionately as we should, or certainly as often as we should. Uh, For me, this might not be true for you, but I think one of the first reasons is what the Bible would call pride. I call it being busy, but the Bible calls it pride. I say, Yo, I got so much stuff going on, but I make time for the things that I think that I need for sure. But when, when life is good, when I feel like I can handle it on my own, prayer, for whatever reason, for me, seems to be one of the first balls that gets dropped. I don't pray as much because I don't feel like I need to. Now, the Bible says that's pride. In, in Psalms 10 and 4, it says this, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all of his thoughts, there's no room for God. Man, I've had days where in all of my thoughts, there just wasn't room for God. I didn't make room for God. I didn't feel like I needed God. And the Bible calls that pride. Now, paradoxically, one of the ironic blessings of suffering, if we could even call it that, is that suffering removes the illusion from our life that we are capable and able to live life without God. Isn't it interesting that in life, so many times for you and other people you know, that prayer becomes the least, it moves from the least important thing to the most important thing when you find yourself in a season of suffering. One of the definitions of suffering that I love is that suffering can be defined as a hardness in your life that exists longer than your own strength can independently maintain. When we find ourselves in situations, not just for a short period, but for a long period, an extended period where our strength on our own has ended, that's when we see really pride reduced and that illusion is gone and we turn to God. In my distress, I called unto the Lord, the psalmist said, and he heard me. The good news is that even in our distress, if that's a thing that pushes us towards prayer, God welcomes us and he welcomes us back to pray to him. Other times, it's not pride in my life that I don't pray, it's I have the wrong views of God. I don't know how many of you are like this as well, but I I tend to think that God is like, look, look at him, come on, go ahead. Look at him, he's coming back. This boy got some nerve. (laughs) He got some nerve, come on, what do do you want? What do you want? And I feel like I have to first defend how well I've done first and foremost. I go into lawyer mode. I wanna present my case of how good I've done. And I want to almost earn the right for God to hear me. But that's the wrong view of God. Here's what the scripture says, and this is one of the most blessed realities that should propel and form and be the basis of your prayer life. It says this in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Now, I want to bring two words to your attention. High priest and sympathize. So Jesus, our high priest, Jesus, the one who mediates between us and and God, our father, Jesus, the one that we can come to, he can sympathize with your weaknesses. Jesus does not look at you with condemnation. He can sympathize. He knows what it feels like to be tempted. He knows all of these things. So then the writer continues, and he says, since we have this beautiful, gracious high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, he knows what it means for you and I to be weak. He knows we're not perfect. It says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment. Not the throne of the exam. The throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy. And you can find grace to help us in the time of need. So when you find yourself in a time of need of grace, trust me, scripture tells us to come to God because he can sympathize with your weaknesses. And here's the crazy part about this scripture. He doesn't just say you can come in, like you gotta like squeeze in and kinda like sit in the back seat. He says you can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Let me tell you what boldness is. Uh, Right before service, One of the most stressful things in the morning is like getting the kids out the house and bringing them to church and then their behavior when they do get here. Um, My son comes, my oldest son had a basketball in his hand. He was like, I'm going to jam session with a basketball. And we were like, no, you're not. He was like, yes, I am. And then the meltdown ensued. I'm like, listen, I tried I saw people around, so I had to be like gracious. I was like, buddy, who's looking, who's looking? I was like, you can't do that, you know? Yes, I will. And I was like, okay, I need another parenting set of skills, I need to read some more books. But he's bold. That's what boldness is. That's what boldness is. Seriously, boldness is, ah, I'm going to do this. I would not recommend that level of borderline arrogance. I don't know where we're going with that. But think about how much he knows he's secure. That he can just come to his father and just tell me what he's going to do. Like I said, we got some stuff to work on. but. Most of us don't even have, we don't, I I wish you were that bold. I wish you were that bold in your prayers, knowing that God hears you, that God doesn't have anything against you, that God's heart is for you, that God gave his only begotten son for you because he loved you so much. I wish we had a little bit of that boldness. That wasn't always feeling the accusations from the enemy and hearing the accusations louder than we hear the love of the father poured out on us in Christ Jesus. If only we had a little smidge of that boldness. So sometimes we have the wrong views of God. Other times we have the wrong views of ourselves. You know, a lot of times as a pastor, one of the things I realize is that people think that my prayers are more powerful than their prayers. And that hurts the church and it hurts us in multiple ways. One, I need y'all praying for me, like for real. Not because I'm about to do something crazy or anything like that, but your prayers are valid. Your prayers are helpful. I need your prayers. I'm a part of this community with you. And my prayers are not gonna be heard at a higher rate. I don't have the the easy pass lane in the prayer line. (laughs) The the Bible calls us a royal priesthood. It's the priesthood of all believers that all of us can mediate. All of us have access to the same throne. I don't have a place in line one centimeter ahead of yours. God wants to hear your prayers. He wants you to pray to him. Now it's good to have pastors pray with you and for you. And we'll see some of this later in the scripture. It's good, that's good. But God wants you to pray. And you don't need anybody else. Um, For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we can go to God directly. Uh, Other times, I feel like we've overcomplicated our prayer life. Uh, We made it just way too deep. You know, like, it would be weird for my oldest son to come up to me, you know, after dinner time and say, Father, oh, Father. (laughs) You're good, you're a good, good Father. And Father, if you would be pleased, only if it's your will, Father, I would be pleased to eat a brownie. <laughs> but if it's not your will, Lord, tell me and I won't eat, uh, I won't eat it. Um, we, we overcomplicate prayer. Prayer is not necessarily this big, deep thing that requires a seminary degree. Prayer is an invitation into the ordinary moments that we have every single day with God. This past week, I was just walking down 2 dodging people and vendors trying to sell me their mixtapes and... <laughs> I was like, Lord, I'm just anxious. I'm just anxious. And I was inviting God into the moment, the ordinary moment of my life. Say, Lord, I just don't know what to do about this. Or, Lord, man, I'm just feeling burdened about this. Or, Lord, I feel like I've messed up. I need wisdom on, on this. Uh, or, Lord, thank you so much for what you have given me in this or this scenario. And I'll, my goal for you is that not that you develop a language and a seminary degree education for, for prayer, but rather that you invite God into the every single ordinary moment of your day. To pray without ceasing is not to spend time in a monastery. It's to invite every single moment, to see every single moment as an opportunity to invite God into that moment, to see God as holy, to see God as your Father, that He is with you, that nothing is meaningless. And that's what it means to invite God into our days, to pray more. So we shouldn't overcomplicate it. Now, despite all of this, despite all of our uh, pride, wrong views of God, and wrong views of ourselves, uh, despite our overcomplicating prayer, Y'all, we really do need prayer. So I'm going to pick up on verse um, 14. Um, It says, "'Is anyone among you sick?' "'He should call for the elders of the church, "'and they are to pray over him, "'anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. "'The prayer of faith will save the sick person, "'and the Lord will raise him up. "'If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven.'" So right after service, actually, when we have a time of prayer, as a normal prayer team would be here, we also have some uh, oil and our pastors will be up here uh, ready to pray for anybody with any health issues. If you would like for us to lay oil on you and lay our hands on you, we would love to pray with and for you. Uh, the Scripture picks up in verse 16, and it says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Now, two things in the scripture. Number one, it assumes that every person in this community is connected, is not isolated from other Christians and community because it says, confess your sins, not just to God, but also one to another. And I want to reiterate how important it is for people to have opportunities like DNA group. It's not the only way, of course, but like a DNA group to be plugged in with community meaningfully so that every single week you will have an opportunity to be prayed for, to confess your sins to one another But to be perfectly honest, as I was reading through the scripture this week, I was thinking, Lord, this is like this beautiful passage of scripture on prayer, and it just feels like confession is in the middle of it. Like, why is that? And one of the things I realized is that it's impossible to have connection with anyone if there's unresolved issues on the other side of it, right? I guess somebody owes you money, and you're like, and they're like, yo, what up? What's going on? Like, what is going on? You tell me at least an acknowledgement of something that's owed. And it'd be really weird to, to have something against someone and just to never talk about it and to keep on moving forward or for them to ask you for something else. So in, in many ways, confession, right, it paves the way for connection. Uh, a couple of months ago, my wife and I, we went to um, a marriage retreat, and one of the sessions was, um, it was a session on building intimacy And I was like, this is going to be all right. You know what I'm saying? I was getting my shoulders loose, getting ready for a massage or something like that. And um, the first session was on confession. I was surprised at first, but then I later realized that it's impossible to develop passion and intimacy and connection with anyone unless we have first learned to apologize and to be forgiven. So when James is saying this here, confess your sins one to another, and to have confession being a part of the rhythm of your prayer life is so that we are not... Um, missing out on a vital component of how we build connection and relationship with God, our Father, that God invites us to pray and God first invites us to confess our sins uh, to not just to him, but also to to other people. And then the the verse 16 says something so powerful. It says something that you might miss out on. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Um, I am a recovering Pharisee. Uh, When I first became a Christian in college, um, I did like a complete 180. I went from wilding out to like being a Bible thumping um, dude on campus. And to be perfectly honest, I looked down on people who weren't following God as well as I was. I wouldn't say it to their face, but deep down inside, I really did believe that I was just more righteous than other people. Thankfully, 21 year old Jordan has gone through some things in life where I have lived beneath the standard that I've set for myself many times. And I have found and discovered that Jordan's righteousness is a terrible substitute for what God demands. What God demands is a perfect righteousness, and you will never get there on your own. So how can our prayers have any effect? If it says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful in effect, what does this mean for you if you're not perfectly righteous? Will God hear you? The good news of the gospel is that although God calls us to live a life that is in accordance with the gospel, and he calls us to try for sure. Um, God, does never, God never condemns effort. God does condemn feeling like we have earned anything good from him. So, God is not opposed to effort, he is opposed to earning. And our righteousness for everybody who is a place their faith in Christ does not come from you. And that is the goodness of the gospel. It comes from Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. As Paul says in Galatians 3, he says this For those of you who are baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. Let me say that again. For those of you who were baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now, what Paul is talking about here and insinuating is a theology of clothing that existed in ancient Jewish culture. Now, for us, clothing is just what we wear. It kind of expresses our self-expression. But for them, the clothing you wore was a statement about your position in life. So there's a story of the prodigal son or a father and his two sons. It's one of the most profound stories in all of Scripture. This man has two sons. One of his sons takes half of of the father's estate, goes to a faraway land, spends it all. Then a famine happens, and he realizes there's no way to make it back um, on his own. He's broke. He's destitute, and he is in need of grace. Scripture says one day he comes to his senses, and he realizes, yo, my father's servants are eating better than I'm eating. I'm eating Applebee's over here, and they're eating, like, really good food. Uh, I don't like Applebee's. I'm sorry for that joke. (laughs) Um, But he's literally, he was eating pig food. And he realizes to himself, if I go home, I'll eat better than this. So I'm going to go home and become a servant at my father's house. Scripture says that he, as he's walking, as he is a long way off, the father sees him. And as he sees him, he runs to him. Now, that part of the story is absolutely beautiful. And that's what I focused on for most of my life in ministry. And as I realized, that's just the beginning of the story. When the father sees him, he says, quick, put a robe on my son. Put a ring on his hand and put sandals on his feet. A robe was restoring his position as a son. You're not going to come home as a servant. Now you have the robe that everybody will see you and they will know that you are my son. You are not just like the regular people here. Even though he had done absolutely nothing to earn anything, he was clothed with a robe that signified who he was, restoring, restoring his position. And it didn't just stop there. He says, put a ring on his finger. This son who wasted all his money now has authority. The father put a ring on his finger and rings in ancient culture, ancient Judaism, signified authority. In Genesis, when it says Pharaoh put a ring on Joseph's finger, he was basically saying, since you have the ring on your finger, you have the authority because it's on you, it's put on your person. And then he put sandals on his feet that restored his privileges now as a son. Now, this son has done absolutely nothing to earn it, but now he has been clothed with what his father has given him. And his entire situation has changed, not because what he has done, but what he has been clothed in. So when Scripture says that the prayer of a righteous person avails much, we have to know that we are all clothed with Christ's righteousness. We have his robe of righteousness, we have his ring of authority, we have the sandals of of God's position, uh, the position he has given us in Christ. And it's not because of what you have done, it's all because of what he has done for us in Christ. And if you think about it, that's one of the scandals of grace. The scandal of grace is that good people don't win in life because none of us are good. The scandal of grace is that bad people People who have messed up, people with real sins and real issues, those are the ones who receive God's favor. And God calls us to live a life of gratitude out of that beautiful fact. So we get to verse 17 in this text. So we're clothed in his righteousness. That means our prayers are powerful. And it says this, Elijah was a human being as we are. Elijah was a prophet. And it says, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, And the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now, this story goes back to 1 Kings, where um, Elijah was praying for rain. And I think James includes this piece in the scripture because he never wants people, God's people, to stop praying. He never wants you to become accustomed to unanswered prayers. He wants you to persevere in your prayers. You know, as I was getting ready for today, I was thinking about one of the biggest hindrances to my prayer life are unanswered prayers. They are dreams that have died, things that God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted them to. And it's been a challenge for me, and I assume it may be a challenge for many of you, that you have prayed once upon a time for something, and God, for whatever reason, allows a delay, sometimes a drastic delay, in between our prayers, when they're submitted, and when God answers, and how God answers. But James includes this portion of scripture about Elijah to remind us, as Jesus taught in Luke 18, that we should always pray and never give up. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story about a woman who goes to this unjust judge as an example for men and women like you and me who should always pray and never give up. Never become accustomed never, take, uh, never become accustomed to a life where we should not perpetually and continually be bringing our requests to God. So in 1 Kings 18, it says, After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in this year. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Some time goes by, and Elijah is praying for what God says is going to happen. And at verse 43, it says something that um, has comforted me and challenged me many times. It says, Then he said to his servant, Go up and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. There's no evidence of what you've been praying for. There's no sign. You can keep on praying, but I don't see anything. Seven times Elijah said, go back. You know, this is a recipe for discouragement. That you're praying for something, you're praying for God to move in a specific way, and you don't see anything. And sometimes we'll feel foolish. Other times, because of the unanswered prayers, sometimes you can't even continue to pray for the thing anymore. For you, what I would tell you to pray is the prayer in Mark four and five, where Jesus is with this man whose son in, has a health condition, and Jesus tells the man, "You want me to heal your son? All things are possible for those who believe." And then the man tells Jesus this one line that I have prayed a thousand times in my life: "I believe, but help my unbelief." There are parts of my life that believes for sure, but there's also a part of me that doesn't believe, that struggles to believe, that struggles to have faith. And that is a prayer for so many of us that I want you praying this week. So number one, I want you to commit yourself to looking at the scripture as an invitation for us to to go back, to keep praying. That prayer that you've prayed, that you put down because you don't see any evidence for it, keep praying. Don't ever get used to a version of life and faith where God is absent where God doesn't hear his people, James tells us that in all situations, we should continue and commit to pray. Later on in the scripture, you see uh, that it rained, that God did do, in fact, what he said he was gonna do. So my encouragement for us is to keep praying, even if that only prayer that only prayer is, I believe, help my unbelief, for us to keep praying. So one of the uh, ways that I pray is something called the AX model of prayer. Uh, AX model stands for Adoration, Confession, thanksgiving and supplication this is one way to pray but there's like 90 ways that you can be praying and what I want us to do right now is have a space where we can all actually pray particularly for some of you who haven't prayed in a long time that this is your opportunity for you to pray we'll have someone who prompts us on how to pray through adoration adoration is basically it's not asking God for anything it's not thanking God for anything he's done it's just adoring the character and the nature of God appreciating Him and His power, and then it moves to confession, confessing the ways that our life don't line up with the way He's called us to live. Then thanksgiving, specifically remembering with gratitude the things that God has done in our life. And then supplication, which is asking God, inviting God into the moment in our life, asking God to move, believing that God can do something, not giving up, not giving in, but continuing to pray. So at this time, we're gonna come for a brief moment of worship and then we're going to move forward with the time of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we move in this time in our service, I pray that you would meet us exactly where we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.